all profit is value extraction. And that means that all profit is theft from you. Corporate America is on welfare, and, and they you've got to get them off welfare. Hey y'all, welcome to Cars and Comrades. This is Bryant. This is your streetcar socialist podcast. I'm here with Brandon and Zach. How are you guys doing today? Oh, not bad. Eh, I've been better. So Connor couldn't make it. I think he said he's moving today. So um, we'll uh, we'll try and pick up the slack from him and, uh, you know, See, this is this is what everyone's talking about, man. Nobody wants to work on their podcast anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, we're talking about streetcars again today. This time, mostly about the GM streetcar conspiracy and uh, sort of the decline of streetcars in the U.S. You know, a little bit more of the history, but um, I guess before we get to that, we should uh, do our project car updates. So I think we did alphabetical last time. So I think, Zach, you should go first this time. Right on. I can do that. Um, yeah, I've got a little progress on the Ranger. Or I guess a lot of progress. I um, was having a weird ticking sound while I was driving it there for a while. Because the torque converter got fucked up when the transmission got fucked up. Which I, I'm pretty sure I talked about a few months back on the pod. I right. Think so. yeah. 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 I went to install freshly rebuilt transmission and torque converter, um, ended up damaging the transmission in the process, took it to a transmission shop. They got the transmission squared away. And I guess I just uh, assumed that they would take a look at the torque converter at the same time and didn't, or maybe I asked them to and they didn't. I don't really remember. Honestly, it's been a long time, but Either way, the torque converter got damaged at the same time, and I was just kind of driving it like that for a little while, but uh, it started making more and more noise. So this past weekend, I pulled it all apart, got a new old junkyard torque converter put into it, and got it all buttoned up. And after this call, I'm going to go do a couple things on it, and it should be good to go. I have a nice working pickup with functional four-wheel drive and working AC and all the nice things a pretty pretty productive weekend for me nice oh yeah cool well, so cool. it's um bright i guess unless y'all yeah. have any questions about my old piece of shit ranger <laughs> no i remember you telling us that you thought it was the torque converter so hopefully that that gets everything like buttoned up for you yeah i i did think it was a torque converter and then i like uh it was probably last weekend i think I was like really convinced it was just an exhaust leak at one point. I was like, it's not the torque converter. I, I would, I blew it out of proportion. It's just an exhaust leak. It'll be fine. Yeah, no, it was definitely the torque converter. I was just being wishful and hoping I didn't have to pull the transmission out, but it is no longer making that clicking noise. So pretty sure I had it right the first time. Pulling an automatic transmission is such a pain in the ass. Oh it's my God. It's, it's just annoying. It's so annoying. And I, uh, as, Y'all saw on the on the Slack channel. I, I 
redneck engineered a uh, transmission jack together from a, an old floor jack and a transmission adapter plate that did not work with that floor jack. So a grinder and a welder got me to where I needed to go. Uh, don't recommend that, though. That was not safe. Yeah, make your own tools. Yeah, totally. Yeah, just you know, don't don't sue me if a transmission crushes you <laughs> because I am I am recommending that you not do that right now. It is not. <laughs> safe. I, I one time in the absence of a transmission jack had to lay the transmission on my chest and like muscle it into place with my entire body. <laughs> so I feel confident that I'm never going to be crushed by a transmission. Oh, when it's in your hands, it's maneuverable. It's when it's suddenly coming at you <laughs> from a high place. That's when it really gets scary. Uh, yeah, I, I've often used ratchet straps around a regular floor jack to get a transmission in. And I thought I would be safer this time and instead weld a transmission adapter to a floor jack. And that was, I guess, marginally safer, but not really. It's the thought that counts. Uh, yeah, I mean, definitely, definitely made safer than uh, than ratchet straps. But so the, you said you put in a junkyard uh, torque converter. Is that going to give you any trouble later on, do you think? Or yeah, probably. <laughs> but fuck it. <laughs> it works for now. I don't give a shit. I've used junkyard uh, torque converters against many of my friends' recommendations, and it outlived all the other problems that I had going on in those vehicles. Yeah, I mean... What would what would wear out in those? Do they have bearings on the inside or something? Fucking yeah, sure. I don't know, honestly. <laughs> I have no idea what the internals of a torque converter uh, are. Uh, they're not like openable, so I, I've right. never opened one. Yeah, they're technically rebuildable, but they have to take them apart and weld them back together and stuff. Um, I don't think yeah. that there's really bearings, but like, yeah, it's it's a whole complicated mess. But the thing is, the only times I've ever heard of an undamaged torque converter failing, it, it's always performance applications. When there's like a trans brake on something yeah. that's spinning up to like 7,000 RPMs okay. to launch, like, then the torque converter just explodes. Yeah. Right. Yeah, if you have like a really high stall torque converter, like you were saying, like for drag race applications, then yeah, I could see that yeah, happening. Yeah, what's, what's your Ranger got in it? The four banger? <laughs> no, it's a... Four liter. Yeah, I doubt that powerhouse of a motor is going to explode your torque <laughs> No, it is not. It. Uh, I have done eighty miles an hour in that truck before, and it is a fucking experience, man. Just <laughs> road noise and exhaust sound, and it's shaking like a motherfucker. It is not fun. So, yeah, I don't think that thing is gonna pop a torque converter. It also has the uh, infamous Ford A four LD. Uh, Transmission behind it, which is often been called the worst transmission Ford ever built. So that thing is going to go before anything else, frankly. I would describe every transmission Ford ever built that way. (laughs) Hey, the C4 was a decent transmission back in the day when things were making like 150 horsepower. I'm just like an expert at destroying transmissions, so... It's honestly easier than you would think. Well, if you do enough burnouts. I mean, I've... (laughs) <laughs> I've, I've broken two MR2 transmissions, so, you know. I mean, those are pretty fragile, though, from what I hear. I mean, it was the same one that was in, what, the Camry or Corolla? Uh, Corolla. Yeah. Probably not built t- for high performance. No, I mean, 
I my MR2 isn't real fast. It only makes like 100 horsepower or something. So Ooh, triple digits. <laughs> but they tend to pop out of fifth gear and grind the synchros and all kinds of shit. Yeah, maybe it's it. It might be making like 80 horsepower at the wheels, <laughs> if that you know. But um, yeah, Zach, did you have anything else, sir? Oh uh, yeah, no, I don't think so. I think that was okay. Uh, all my updates. All right, that's you, Brian. Yeah, so um, setting the scene a little bit, I was talking to one of my relatives yesterday, and they're like, "Oh, you know, I know you were looking for a new job. Maybe you should go back to school and be a mechanic." And I'm like, no, I hate working on cars now. So <laughs> this whole week I've been working on my Sabaru, uh, just a, you know, a few hours every day. And, uh, you know, I wanted to get it ready, um, for snow and, and everything. And like it had that fuel leak and a couple other things that I wanted to do, uh, to fix it. And the repair for the fuel leak, I, th- I think I talked about this before, but it involves taking the entire intake manifold off. And that is a pain in the ass. Um, you know, I looked up some guide on how to do it. It wasn't just like it wasn't like a Chilton manual or whatever. It was just some guy's blog. And he's like, yeah, you know, I've done this a few times. I can do it in about like three hours or so. And it probably took me like, I don't know, at least six probably closer to 10 hours to do that. I mean, I was doing other things in that meantime, you know, I changed the spark plugs. I, um, put in some new vacuum lines. I, uh, put a new intake, uh, you know, I, I was talking with Zach before we started recording about just like some of the decisions, some of like the engineering decisions that Subaru makes, like just make you scratch your head. Like the intake routing for those is just so convoluted. So it's got, you know, it's got a little sort of ram air scoop that goes in the grill above the radiator that goes, you know, um, does a U-turn into the air filter box and then a 90 degree turn underneath the intake manifold into the turbo and then goes out the turbo, goes 90 degrees, 90 degrees into the and then another 90 degrees into the intercooler and then into the intake manifold, and then to the four cylinders. So um, the section that goes in between the air filter and the turbo is what I replaced because they're, you know, they tend to crack and break over time just sitting underneath there. And I got a silicone one from some guy for decently cheap. So, yeah, that was a lot of fun. Um I did the coolant reroute thing. I think I talked about this like six months ago, but the cylinder number four, the one that's um, on the rear on the driver's side, um, I guess it's last in line for coolant. So it kind of, it tends to wear out quicker than the other cylinders. So there's, um, there's like a freeze plug, just like a threaded freeze plug that on the head that you can undo and then put a fitting in there and tap it into the lines for like the heater core. And that gets a little bit more coolant flowing to that cylinder. Um, And so you have less detonation, less cylinder wear because everything's at the same temperature and whatnot. And I, you know, I think six months ago or whatever, I had said, okay, I ordered the fitting and the, you know, little T barbed fitting and the hoses and everything for it. And I, you know, I just need to find the time to jack up the car and go underneath there and do this. 
and so that's what I did this week. And I found out that I had the wrong fitting. You know, someone someone told me on some internet forum that I needed a 14 millimeter threaded fitting. And uh, it turns out it was a 20 millimeter threaded fitting. So, um, yeah, I had to, uh, you know, order that on Amazon, you know, next day delivery. So sorry to whatever poor parcel carrier had to deliver that to me. Um, and, uh, I got the right thing in there and, and it works. Uh, I don't know if it really makes a huge difference. Like it maybe runs five, 10 degrees cooler than it was before on the gauge, but I don't know. I have no idea if it's making a, an, an actual difference, but five to 10 degrees in terms of engine temperature is a lot. That sounds good. Yeah. Okay. Um, also, I mean, I- if- if the internet is to be trusted in general, every single build list that I've ever seen for any performance Subaru, one of the first things they say is, uh, you know, a cylinder four coolant mod and a air oil separator. Those are like the two big longevity and like, you know, safety mods to do. Okay. So well, that's I, good I hear know. that they're very big. Also, it's hard to derail a little bit, but I meant to ask you, you DIY'd that you didn't buy one of those like $70 kits that they sell. Yeah, no, it was like thirty bucks for all the parts that I nice. that I got. Nice. So, I need you. I need you to send me that. Uh, that yeah, parts list because I definitely need to do it to my car as well. Yeah, and I might I might have some leftover tubing. I'm not sure. Oh, sick! But, uh, that would be fucking awesome. Yeah, I mean, it was a little bit hard to get the right length to so where it wouldn't like kink up, but it would still get in there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it took some trial and error. So I've got like three different sections of tubing that didn't that weren't quite you know a little too short a little too long or whatever yeah so that's i don't know um but yeah i got it to work nice but uh what else oh and then yesterday i went to the junkyard and i got um a new ac line off of a a wrecked wrx and uh a fuel fitting um because what there's a there's another fuel fitting that's not under the intake manifold, just next to the fuel filter that, um, I don't know. I, I, I just, I put in like a straight section of like not flared tubing and just, you know, tightened down the hose clamps really hard. And I saw that leaking a little bit. So I got the proper one with the barbs on it to actually splice that in. So I'll do that eventually, but you know, until then I'll just keep tightening down those hose clamps, but. Yeah, so I was at the the junkyard and and there is um I was telling Zach he's like, "Oh, I never see a, a WRX at the junkyard." And I was like, "Lo and behold, there's a not only a WRX, but an STI also." And uh I I pulled that fuel fitting off the STI and there was a a couple of people like pulling a uh, an external wastegate off of it. But uh man, that thing was wrecked pretty hard. Like I was telling Zach like the transmission was broken to about three pieces. So that thing hit something real hard. Um, that matches with my general impression of Subaru drivers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. Okay. Well, specifically that. WRX drivers and STI drivers. Oh, yeah. 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 I didn't see any like uh, vape cartridges on the inside. But, uh, wouldn't be How surprised. many anime stickers were on it? Uh, none that I saw. I mean, maybe they were on the front bumper that got totally disintegrated, but I don't know. Um, but yeah, that's what that's what I what I've been up to. I, I decided I don't want to be a mechanic. 
It sucks. Yeah, if I were going to be a mechanic, I would just have to spe- I mean, be like, okay, but I won't work on anything less than 40 years old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's like the opposite of the the one mechanic near me that wouldn't do an alignment on my MR2 because it's too old. Oh, yeah. No, I struggle with that stuff, too. <laughs> what? I don't, I, I don't know why it's like, it's just a regular strut type suspension. There's nothing, there's nothing weird about it. It's not like it's the bolts are real rusty or anything. It wouldn't be that hard to do. In a, yeah. A long I, I will it, say but. that like, aside from just the way that a lot of times if something's older, then people don't remember how to do it as well. Cause it's not as common. There's a lot of cases where I've had people just straight up tell me like, I'm not going to do that. Everything's going to be like rusted together and fucked up and yeah they just don't even take a look at it they're like no i'm not going to do that it's going to be a nightmare it's not worth my time and I'm, i yeah. just don't go to those places anymore <laughs> right yeah but brandon what have you been working on uh so i kind of took a vacation this past week where i was going to go to my friend's house where my race van has been stored and get it ready to load onto a trailer and ship home so that I can actually like start making real moves towards getting it driving and running. Uh, and I failed wildly. So I decided to drive my new van and I I put about 1100 miles on it in the past week. And that that's the 74 Ford. And I will say that for the five days that I was at my friend's house, I think we spent the first two or three days Fixing things on the Ford that either broke on the drive out there or were already like mildly broken or just (laughs) like when we finally had everything together and it was running better, like we had, I would say, done a mild tune up to it, like just tighten everything up, replace the plugs, like fix a bunch of electrical issues. Like I will not uh, disparage that. Like I everything electrical in the van is operational now, except for the fuel gauge because I need to replace the sending unit and that's a somewhat difficult to get to spot for a somewhat expensive part. So it's, it's low priority. We did all this stuff on it. And then like, we're taking it out for a drive, like saying, Hey, to some friends pull out of our friend's house. And within a hundred feet, I have to pull over and uh, start picking up all of my clutch pedal assembly parts from the street and putting them back on the van because the fucking linkage the cotter pin broke and slipped free and just sprayed all of the clutch pedal like it there's a lot of extra linkages in in this because of the orientation of like the transmission is way far behind the van there's really like very little hood to speak of so the way it's routed there's just extra bits and they were all free and dangly and hanging out and Luckily, we were going really slow on like a rural road, so I was able to find everything and get it back together. But then the next day, we had to like piece everything back together and and figure out what all bushings we were missing and figure out that those are incredibly difficult to find and just put everything back together without them. And I'm probably going to have to do some light machine work when I do my transmission swap on it. Like, I, I actually like I was talking to Connor and sent like the laundry list of shit that we had to do to that van just to get it like continuously running properly. Like it was it wasn't even starting consistently after the first like six hundred miles of that trip. Um Welcome to the Ford yeah. Life, buddy. Welcome like it's really life. living up to its acronym. <laughs> oh yeah. 
So wait, is it? Um, it's not a hydraulic clutch. It's got a mechanical. Oh yeah, it's on there? still like the Z bar and and all that assembly. Wow. And there's like yeah. sounds like sounds like you it, you're you're not skipping leg day whenever you're driving. No, definitely thing. not. No, it's it's well the the yeah. real delight is that first gear is the gear that it's hardest to get it into. So every now and then I'll just like put it in neutral when I'm like at a light for a while. But then like once the light turns green, I like, you know, put the clutch in and just cannot muscle it into first gear. It's one of those things where it's not even like powering it in. It's like if you don't use a little bit of finesse, you're just going to break something. Uh, Yeah. So like of the five days that I was out there to work on my race van, I spent a solid three of them working on the van that I drove there. Uh, which, you know, it starts good, it runs good now, and uh, as I was bragging about uh, off-air earlier, I am now getting 16 miles to the gallon before I've actually done any modifications to improve my fuel economy. Ooh. Which means that, um, depending on how a couple of factors play out, I'm looking at, realistically, 22 to 25 miles to the gallon highway out of that van by the time I'm done fucking with the drivetrain. The enormous caveat there being, I don't really drive it over 60 miles an hour because it is terrifying. <laughs> yeah. It's, plus, it's just like a brick. I don't mind cruising it slow. It's a straight six. It's not like a powerhouse where I'm going to be doing 100. The van suspension absolutely hates going 70. The wind resistance factor between 60 and 70 is just orders of magnitude greater. So, I just kept... What's that? I forget, do those have a, a straight axle in the front? No, I do have a technically independent front suspension, but it's that weird, like, early Ford truck style where it's a twin I-beam. Oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. So, like, if yeah. you compress the suspension, the camber changes suddenly. Yeah. I Well, I don't know that yeah. much about that system. I haven't looked at it super closely, but, yeah, I'm pretty sure. I mean, it's basically just a... Um, a swing axle like on a on the rear of a VW bug but the pivot points are on the opposite side of the car so it's got a longer lever so it's a less dramatic change than it is on a Volkswagen but it's still not not perfect okay you know? that that is that is correct that's exactly what yeah. my Ranger has and they're actually really good for off-road because you can get a ton of travel with that kind of setup and still have like a really solid suspension. Um, but yeah, it is not fun at highway <laughs> speeds. They are floaty to yeah. say the least. I mean, and they weren't great on uh, Volkswagens or Corvairs or any of the other cars that had, you know, rear um, swing axles. Cause they would, uh, you know, if you, if you go for a bump and you, you bump the, the back end of the car up, and then it comes down, it can kind of jackknife and like bind up the suspension. Oh boy. And also you're like riding on the outside of the tires at that point. So like if I, I'll see if I can find it, put in the show notes, but there's a video from like the 1960s of a bunch of like regular last cars driving around the Nürburgring in uh, Germany. And there's this one corner where just all the Volkswagens spin out and, fly off the road because of this, you know, they're, they're a little loosey goosey in the rear, but, uh, 
Sorry to derail. No, it's the... fine. That is actually how I the... thought that those suspension <laughs> work, but I just wasn't sure. Yeah, the thing's pretty sketchy at over 65. And, man, it's it's an old beat-up van with a straight six. I'm not trying to, like, haul ass in it. So I kind of don't mind cruising it at, like, 55, 60. I've, I've got other vehicles that can definitely move when I need them to. So this one can be just my nice thing that goes kind of slow but gets good fuel economy. I was going to say, uh, based on my memory, this would be by far the best fuel mileage i have a van that's off the road right now that i'm doing the one i'm doing all the body work to that uh Mm -hmm. gets 18 but that's with overdrive yeah so if you end up going to the t5 kind of amalgamation that we had talked about before i'm gonna have to tweak a factory t5 like combine some parts from from the different makes that they went into but yeah, I think with all said and done, it's going to be a moderately straightforward swap. Um, and that that should stand to get me over 20 miles to a gallon. And then I'm looking at like uh, doing some custom uh, intake and exhaust stuff where maybe I can tweak it just enough to get a little bit more power down low, which does not actually hurt fuel economy if you can keep from bogging down the motor at certain speed, blah, blah, blah. So... I'll keep you guys updated on that. But for right now, without overdrive and bad gearing for highway speed anyway, I'm already getting close to as good a gas mileage as I got out of my previous best vehicle. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, we didn't get much done on the race car, which was unfortunate since I literally just drove like a thousand miles to do that. But I got to see my best friend that I never see. And he's been going through some stuff that he's out from underneath now so he's he's doing well it's good to see him but yeah i uh i went to go cut up the frame on the race van so that we could fix the four link kit and then found a couple of things like uh parts that i could buy and and so on and so forth where i'm like oh i really didn't need to do this i actually could have just replaced this it would have been way better saved me a bunch of hassle but here we are so i did a whole bunch of work that now i get to undo anyway because i'm going to replace it I didn't make the van any closer to actually being able to load onto a trailer. I just uh, just uh, just hacked at things in the cold and rain for two days until finally I was just like, you know what? I just I I'd, I'd been away from the project too long. I for I didn't go in with a good plan because I didn't remember exactly where we left it off. So like, if I can get back out there in the next few months, we'll be in a good position to to start back over again and be close to getting it loaded onto a trailer. But yeah, all I did was get the frame fixed in a way where I, I'm barely better off than where I started. If, if we, if I was going to keep the frame as it is, it would be much better for drag racing right now than it was before. Cause I actually have travel and in, in the linkages in all different positions, but for the, for the four link, I mean, but yeah, I just, uh, I just spent two days like shooting myself in the foot and being like, oh, well, maybe if I, I shoot my foot again, it'll knock that last bullet out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, other other big good news in terms of the project for my early uh, Chevy that is not my race car, but just like my... It's actually the first like classic vehicle that I owned and I love it and I've put way too much money into it and it's in way too bad a condition, all this stuff. It's the one where the window channel rotted out. 
I found a guy, he's a vanner, and he lives a couple hours away from me, who had custom dies made to fabricate his own window channel on a power hammer when he had this problem. Whoa. Sweet. So he's Whoa. got the dies already, nice. so a friend of mine put me in touch with him, and it looks like I might, uh, like, because this is a battle I've been fighting off air for six months like every time i go into work on it i'm like no this new plan that i i came up with doesn't work i've gone through like four different types of plans to try and make this work and every one of them fails for a different fucking reason and now this guy is just like oh yeah i can just make you one <laughs> and i'm like i don't That's... i almost don't even care what it costs if you can make it i am <laughs> it saves me like the next like 30 or 40 hours worth of headache that i'm going to be putting into it so why not yeah man that is like such a hard thing for me people are like oh you know is this really worth your time and effort i'm like yeah but money is money and like i can see the number go down and i hate that but at a certain point it is so hard to pass up just having someone else do something because it's like Oh, God, it can just be so frustrating. Well, with this, it boils down to, like, I don't have the tools and knowledge to do this. So I was doing some really hack shit that was not doing me any favors. And, yeah, like like you said, you can watch the number go down. But it's it's, when I enjoy something and I know what I'm doing, like, if I've got to, like, tear an engine apart and put it back together, I have tools for that. I have know-how. If you're telling mm-hmm. me to do sheet metal work, then I literally, my tools are like a Harbor Freight hammer and dolly set <laughs> and like a couple of like odds and ends, other things. But like in a pinch, I can do some sheet metal work. I'm actually going to do some body work on the Ford this week, but that is just not where my skill set's at. And usually it involves a lot of Bondo. You know, I'm not, I'm not the guy who's putting two inches a thick layer of Bondo on everything, but like. I'm not afraid to smooth something out with a little bit, you know? And no, oh, yeah. now this guy is just going to make something for me. And if the price is reasonable, I'm going to buy two. I mean, might because as well, right? I have other yeah. vans that I just thought were never going to be on the road, that they were parts vans that like, I'm like, well, dude, if you can make this, that actually could change the game for that van. So yeah, you know, that that's cool. That's a huge weight off my shoulders because it means that while he's, it, it might take him a few weeks to get around to it because it, he's not in any hurry to help me out. You know, this is just like a thing he's doing to be nice. He's going to make a couple of bucks doing it, but like, you know, what, whatever. So I'm just going to work on other stuff in the meantime, and hopefully I'll uh, make some progress on that project, and then he'll hit me up, and I'll have a new window frame. And he also lives near, uh, well, I, I won't say near. There's a Summit Racing like warehouse on the way to, to this guy, so I'm just going to use that as an excuse to go pick up my window <laughs> channel one day and then go to Summit Racing. Nice. Nice. Which, like, yeah. if you've... I, I know that there's there's three Summit warehouses, and I don't think there's one near you. If you're near a Summit warehouse, they're great. Especially if you're a Chevy guy. Because they'll have, like, an entire corner of the store that's, like, returns and display stuff that's, like, seriously discounted. Cool. Yeah. Like... Like crate motors for like fifteen hundred bucks and shit. <laughs> Holy shit! Like not like that a good crate motor. Drive. What's that? That might be worth the drive. Oh, dude! Like I literally saw a small block Chevy. It was like I think a, a three hundred five that was like a mild like reman motor. You know, it wasn't making like two hundred and fifty horsepower even. But if you just need a V eight 
for your Chevy to get it back on the road. Like, yeah, that thing was dirt. It might have been like sixteen or seventeen hundred. I don't remember, but it was cheap. Nice. And that was that was like, you know, no no dressing, no carburetor, no like accessories or anything, but like a complete motor. Yeah, and remanufactured. That's like, I mean. That's not a bad deal. I mean, I would probably never put a 305 in anything because I think they're dog shit <laughs> and I kind of hate them. And I'd rather just find a 350. But, I mean, yeah, if you had to have one, that's not a bad deal. Yeah, like, well, they just have also, like, it's also just wild to go into a store where they have, like, four or five different types of, like, superchargers, like, on display that you could buy on the spot. And I'm like, well, I don't. I don't have the money to buy this on the spot and I don't have anything ready to put it on, but it's cool that that's an option. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty dope. They're more like, um, East coast, like Midwest. Yeah. I know that they've got a, a showroom in Georgia and like the one that's a few hours from me. I don't know where the other one's at. I think maybe yeah. Texas. Nothing close to us out here in the Rocky mountain region, unfortunately. Well, I'll go and I'll tell you guys how great it is and how much you're missing. <laughs> awesome. I look forward to being super jealous. <laughs> well, I don't remember there being any like, like tuner stuff just out on the shelves and super cheap. So you're probably not missing out a ton, but I mean, I do technically have a small block Chevy sitting somewhere that is mine. Um, that you know, I just need to go pick up. So I have oh, yeah, I no plans for it. I have, yeah, I know, I do too. <laughs> I have no plans for it, but like the fact that I could just walk into a store and get a supercharger for it makes me uh, makes the gears start turning a little bit. Hmm, mm, what could I put this in? Oh, I did find a place that sells supercharger intakes for my Ford three hundred. <laughs> oh God! Of course they do. <laughs> In, in a way that simultaneously makes no sense and all the sense in the world, uh, it's from Australia. Huh. Yep. Okay. They would. Is that? Yeah. I mean, they're big on Ford straight sixes. Yeah. Right? The Barra? Is the Barra like, a, you know, a descendant of the Ford 300 I at all? I think it might be. It would make sense. I think they're related right? somehow or another. Yeah. I don't think. Well, just from what I'm told in general, it's harder to get V8s there. So they'll just do wild stuff with what they've got on hand. I mean, I think some of the top of the line Chevys came with LS V8s. Um, yeah, the Holdens. Yeah, Holdens down there. I mean, yeah. Some of the top of the line Chevys is a lot different than us going to a junkyard and having our pick of them. Right. I know there's some people that have um, used the uh, what's it, the 4.2 liter straight six out of the uh, the um, Trailblazer. And put turbos on those, and they call them kind of like the American version of the Barra. Hmm. But those are an all aluminum motor, so maybe they're not quite as strong as the Iron Block Barra. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. And there's definitely not the aftermarket support for those. I, I've I've only been recently made fully aware of this. Do you guys know about like Australian burnout competitions and stuff? A little bit. Yeah, yeah. that's the big thing down there. That's like, like what they're all about. The, like the way we treat drag racing in America, they treat just burnout competitions. It, there's no like metric. It's like nobody's trying to do their best quarter mile time. They're just trying to light their car on fire doing a burnout. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like literally alcohol burning like 5,000 horsepower motors where they're just doing burnouts. Yeah. I saw someone building. <laughs> 
a rear wheel drive mini Cooper for one of those on like a build thread or whatever. There's some wild shit. I just like it because it's, it's almost inspired me to dial back some of my plans for the, my drag van because I'm like, wait a second, they're probably having more fun than actual drag racers, <laughs> and they're not like competing. They're just making smoke and like doing like donuts in a parking lot. Yeah, yeah. Any Australian six kids, mate? <laughs> any Australian listeners, uh, write in to our email and tell us about you know hoons and bogans and stuff. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating to see it from a distance, but I don't know a whole lot about it. Yeah, so that's that's uh that's what I've gotten done. Oh, I got my Chevy van running again. I don't remember if that was the case the last time we recorded, but yeah, dude, I don't know. It's it's basically been just a week and a half of nonstop me fixing shit. So, what was wrong on the Chevy? I just wasn't starting. Uh, ended up being uh, I need a new ignition coil. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think yeah. you're. I remember you talking about it might have been the starter or the solenoid or something. But okay, that's good to know. Uh, well, the the starter on my Ford went around that same time too. Oh, maybe that's what I was thinking of. Yeah, no, everything broke at once one week. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's not one thing; it's another. Yeah. All right. Well, um, so uh, you ready to talk about streetcars for us? Yeah, uh, I might want to take a quick break and get some more water here real quick. Um, That was always allowed. All right. I mean, I don't get it, but I think that's a product of age. But I do get it in that the Miata does seem like the most uwu of vehicles. Yes. (laughs) 100%. 100% is. Yeah. Is it the NAs or NBs or which whichever ones had the pop-up headlights? Are NAs, did, very yeah. Uwu. NAs, yeah. Very, very uwu. Oh, I kept seeing like people talk about NA Miatas, and I just assumed that there was also a turbocharged version. <laughs> well, there was for like one year in like 2006, I think. But those yeah, are... but I just I just meant that like I thought that the NA was naturally aspirated. No, it's just NA and B and C. Oh, okay. Fair yeah. enough. I think the yeah the RX seven is the same. It's F A F B F C. Just the chassis code or whatever. Okay, that makes sense. All right, should we talk about streetcars? I mean, if you feel like it. it. <laughs> um, I don't care if you feel like it. You do it. God damn it! Thank you, Zach. <laughs> You're welcome. So. Last episode, we left off around 1900 with the uh, St. Louis streetcar strike. And um, picking up in 1908, the Ford Model T was introduced. And, uh, you know, suddenly cars were cheap for regular people to buy. And by 1914, um, there was a sort of a a challenger to streetcars called Jitney buses. And this was basically like the Uber of the early 20th century. Um, It was either uh, a private car, like a Ford Model T. This is private cars and trucks and buses that were used as sort of unregulated independent bus lines. So they would usually follow a fixed route, but not a fixed schedule. So they would just show up uh, to a stop on the curb 
and wait until it was full and then go to the next stop and drop off whoever wanted to get off there. Uh, and, you know, you could flag it down like a taxi or whatever. And uh, there were like direct competition to streetcars because they often ran parallel routes. Um, and sometimes they would actually block the the tracks and like get in the way of the streetcars. And so a lot of city governments passed regulations to like limit where the jitney buses could stop, like where they could park, what routes they could go on, what hours they could operate on. And it was successful in sort of like protecting the streetcar industry. And, you know, kind of like how a lot of, you know, cities have failed to regulate Uber and Lyft and all that kind of stuff, you know. It's, it's too bad we don't have ANCAP Connor on here to like talk about how like that sort of competition could have like, you know, re- really like uh, somehow benefited the public. But, uh, you know, big government just uh, squashing the little guy. Or Right. Something. Yeah. I'm actually really glad we don't have <laughs> that, that bit going on this episode. <laughs> yeah. Let's let's try not to bring that back. <laughs> what did you say? Um, bring that back? So after World War II in the Philippines, um, basically all of the Jitney buses there were destroyed in the war. And so locals uh, got a bunch of military surplus American army jeeps and they built what they call jeepneys. And a lot of them are still around today, although they probably don't have the original motor um, or they've just built entirely new sort of Jeep shaped buses out of, uh, you know, whatever vehicles they and frames and engines and what they not they have so those were kind of cool just because like there's sort of a culture around them of like decorating the exterior and the interior of the jeepneys um they're kind of like a big part of philippine culture or filipino culture excuse me and uh so like there's different versions of this in other places like in some places like i think in new york city they're called dollar vans or share taxis some places are called taxi buses or mini buses. Um, and it's the same philosophy. You know, they just um, either you call them like a taxi and they, you know, pick up a few half dozen people or whatever at a time, or uh, they follow a route and pick up people as they go. Um, kind of like, I don't know if this is true of other cities, but like in Denver, there's like an airport shuttle that's just a full size van that comes and picks you up if you got like you know, five, 10 people to, to share a van to the airport. So as automobiles became more popular, uh, streetcar service became less reliable because the cars would get in the way and the streetcars had to follow the same uh, traffic rules as a car. And so I'll jump around a little bit. I'll keep this mostly in chronological order, but I wanted to focus a little bit on uh la because it's kind of a microcosm of you know american transport infrastructure um there's this guy named henry huntington as in huntington beach he was a major real estate developer and also he owned at different points the pacific electric and the los angeles railway systems uh, which were two sort of competing rail lines or uh streetcar lines And conveniently for him, he built the streetcar lines out to the suburbs that he was developing uh, with his land. Um, So it was kind of a way to, you know, drive 
people to buy houses out in the suburbs and commute into the city. And uh, similar things happened around the country. Like in Denver, there's a lot of what they call streetcar suburbs. So like any major suburb in the Denver area, if you go to the downtown area, it's, um, it's usually where the streetcar stops were or the stations. And that's the area that's most dense. Um, you have usually, you know, like four story brick buildings, uh, that are like shops on the bottom and apartments above. And that used to be like the way that a lot of American cities and suburbs were built. Um, it was very convenient. Um, you could walk around that downtown area and then get on the streetcar and go to your job in the, in the city. But, uh, in 1910, in L.A., um, a ride on the Pacific Electric's Long Beach line took 41 minutes. But by 1954, it was up to a full hour with trains regularly arriving up to 30 minutes behind schedule. And that's mostly because of cars getting in the way. Oh, cool. Yeah. So um, a little preview of what's to come. Uh, in 1974, antitrust lawyer Bradford C. Snell testified in front of U.S. Senate and said, uh, General Motors and Allied Highway Interests acquired the local transit companies, scrapped the pollution-free electric trains, tore down the power transmission lines, ripped up the tracks, and placed GM motor buses on already congested L.A. streets. So this is largely true, but there's a little bit more to the story, and that's what I'll get into. But another thing on L.A., uh, it it only managed to turn a profit one year between 1913 and the beginning of World War II. So this time period was kind of the dark ages for streetcars in the U.S. I feel like all of U.S. history has been kind of the dark ages for, US, uh, for streetcars in the U.S. Well, uh, I mean, during World War II... Uh, transit ridership peaked in the U.S. Um, because of gas rationing. And at that time period, a lot of it was buses, but there was quite a bit of uh, streetcars. And that was kind of the peak. Um, although I think maybe streetcars peaked a little bit earlier. But yeah, it turns out, you know, if people can't drive their cars, they're going to take public transit. You know, it's simple as that. As a slight aside, um, I'm really like at, at the time of recording, gas prices are absolutely astronomical because of Russia going into Ukraine. And I'm really interested to see what America starts to look like when gas stops getting expensive and starts getting rationed. Right. Yeah. Who knows? I mean, because price is just a thing people complain about, but rationing is not something that you can just like, be, be like okay, well, I'll spend more. Like, no. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think we can look to like the gas cri or the oil crisis in the 1970s, frankly, is probably what it's going to play out like. Um, I think Donut Media just recently released a video about what was going on then and, um, you know, about people lining up for miles at gas stations to get gas and like street fights breaking out to, uh, you know, secure your little ration of gas. That's probably pretty similar to how it's going to go this time around. I don't think we as a population have changed that much since the 1970s. So, oh, yeah, I don't think that will be better. For it. I'm more <laughs> wondering how catastrophically bad it will be. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think it'll probably be worse than yeah. the 1970s gas crisis, <laughs> but I just don't know to what degree and in what specific ways. <laughs> but it will almost certainly be worse, as everything has just gotten worse progressively over the years. I, I'm just excited for the comeback of mopeds. Because... <laughs> Because those based- you're sitting on a gold mine, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that, but I don't know. I mean, I could see like you know smaller scooters and whatnot be- becoming a big thing. Like uh, I forget the last time that gas got real expensive, but that was when you had all the the Chinese 50 cc scooters come into the U.S. in a big way. Like what ten I years mean, ago? Co- coincidentally, a week before. The uh, uh, like before Russia going into Ukraine and gas prices going all, all wonky, I had just already started riding my bicycle more because if I'm not working and I have free time to just where I can just behave in a day the way that I want to, not the way that I have to because of time constraints, I like riding a bicycle. So I'm actually like doing pretty all right right now, other than the thousand mile road trip I just took. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that reminds me, I should. When we're done recording, I should go for a bike ride because it's nice out. Yeah, we got three inches of snow yesterday. It's dog shit here. Uh, I mean, we just got over the big the big blizzard over here. But let's see, where was I? Okay, so going back to the more chronological order. Um, in 1932, Alfred P. Sloan, the uh, CEO of General Motors, founded the National Highway Users Conference to lobby Congress for more highways and parking lots. And um, I know they, they put out some really good propaganda over the years. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to try and uh, patch together some audio equipment here to, to play some of it for you guys. So uh, let me see if I can uh, do that here real quick. Uh, and this stuff is mostly from the fifties, but you know, it, it applies to uh, earlier periods as well. Like I said, I'm I'm jumping around a little bit. Okay, this first one is from uh, Dow Chemical, um, who uh, made a lot of um, asphalt and stuff like that. So and never did anything wrong. <laughs> yes, freedom to travel safely and quickly and comfortably on our highways is not a little freedom, but a big one. People in their own communities are getting together to do something. I'm Helen Rathburn, the fourth grade teacher at the new elementary school. I, I came here today just to listen. I didn't expect to say anything. Uh, but after hearing some of the arguments against the new highway proposal, I would like to say just one thing. I work all day with children. And they're your children. Your children will have a better country to live in because of these new roads. Can't you see that this highway means a whole new way of life for the children? And then everyone clapped. Wow, very real, very genuine. (laughs) You can tell. So when I watch old movies and everybody seems corny as fuck, it's just because everyone back then was just corny as fuck. Gotcha. (laughs) Surely that person was not an actor. Yeah. People were just funny back then. Yeah. No, Helen there. Was it Helen? Helen Rathbone or something? Yeah, she was the gen- real deal. She's actually a kindergarten teacher or whatever. 
She just wants Dow Chemical to create tons and tons of asphalt for the children. It's for the children, don't you see? So your kids can, in the future, get drunk and die in a car wreck on that highway. (laughs) All right, so I got one more real quick. Let me find it. All right, so this one is the Road Builder's Prayer from, I think, 1956. Oh, almighty God who has given us this earth and has appointed men to have domination over it, who has commanded us to make straight the highways, to lift up the valleys, and to make the mountains low. We ask thy blessing. Bless these, our nation's road builders, and their friends. Yeah, so they're they're really pouring it on thick there. Just really appealing to you know religion and children and everything to build roads not gonna lie in that like three second clip i saw like four cars that i desperately wanted (laughs) (laughs) uh but yeah those are i also what's that I don't remember the I don't remember the part of the Bible where God said something about making highways, and they definitely said that it did. I feel like that's false information right there. Uh, I think it's like a I think there's something in the Bible about like making the path straight or something. I'm not really sure. I think it's a metaphor. It's not really supposed to be taken wow. literally. Yeah, they stretched that. Yeah, these one. dudes are so fucking repressed that they even have to have a special prayer about how the roads have to be perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's plenty of other, uh, sort of archival clips in that, in that film. I'd suggest the listener to go out and watch it. It's free on YouTube. I'll have the link in here. There's other good stuff out there. If you want to learn about it, like I said, the do not eat videos about urban planning. Um, I forget if he did one on Robert Moses, uh, specifically, but maybe that can be one of our episodes in the future. Uh, cause that guy was a real piece of shit. So let's see, in 1935, the Public Utility Holding Company Act passed Congress, which made it illegal for a single private business to both provide public transportation and supply electricity to other parties. So this was a big problem for the streetcar companies because that's what they did. You know, it was basically a law targeted at them. Um, they So they had to sell off their elect, you know, electrical Uh, facilities to another company and then buy the power back from them. So, okay. um, To provide additional context to make sure, or well, to clarify what you mean exactly, was this targeting them like very purposefully with the intent of, of hurting them and favoring cars or was something else going on? Um, I think it was also part, I mean, I'm just guessing here, but I think it was, a lot of the public sentiment was against these big monopoly streetcar companies. Um, And so maybe it was, I don't know, was Roosevelt in office in 1935? Um, Was he busted in office for a long time? So it's possible. Yeah. I should probably have known that, but, uh, (laughs) um, but yeah, I mean, it seemed targeted at them. So I'm not sure exactly what the modus operandi or the, the motivation of, of the lawmakers was for that. Um, yeah, it was FDR in 35. Okay. Yeah. So it might've been sort of this antitrust sort of thing to try and, you know, create more competition. 
but it um you know it ended up just making uh, GM more powerful. So also in 1935, uh, GM bought Yellow Coach, uh, which is a bus manufacturer, and they started putting out ads um, talking about uh, modernizing and motorizing public transit. Um, basically, they're saying that uh, buses were more modern than streetcars. And at this point, like in the middle of the Great Depression, like a lot of uh, streetcar lines, you know, the cars and the tracks and whatnot were not very well maintained. And so it could be a little bit of a bumpy ride and maybe not the most consistent or high speed um, uh, service. So, you know, uh, maybe buses looked like a better thing to certain parts of the public. I mean, at that point, like the, you know, emissions were not great for a bus. So like you'd be you know, breathing in a lot of uh, diesel fumes and that sort of thing. But they were faster than the streetcars, uh, in theory. Um, and they were attracted to a lot of public transit companies because the upfront cost was less than a trolley car. The infrastructure cost was less. You didn't have to have overhead lines and rails and everything. And they're more flexible. They can go um, on different routes. You can change up your routes if you need to. So, I mean, that was really what caused the death of streetcars um, is that, you know, buses were a more attractive, at least in the short term, a more attractive uh, proposition for public transit companies. For the sake of clarification, though, that is actually a, a struggle that I have seen in or at least read about in South America and even domestically, like in my city, there is a bus line where there would reasonably be a train line but it was just a lot easier to pay for the infrastructure for the dedicated bus route because it's it's literally like a a two-lane road that goes through a big chunk of the city that is buses only yeah and even doing that the infrastructural costs were still a lot less but the benefits are still pretty significant like you don't get full efficiency of like trains but as far as, as, you know, cutting down on pollution and, like, necessitating driving everywhere and stuff like that, buses are still a huge win. But, oh, yeah. Over cars? Still, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, just, I, I just want to be too. really clear. Like, our buses are not as good as trains, but they are still a drastic improvement if that's the only option that you can get in. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and just for traffic, too. Like, a bus full of like 20 people takes up a lot less space than 20 cars on the road, you know? Oh um, yeah. I was thinking of the same infographic that you're thinking of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, and I should say a lot of the information that I got, uh, is from, is from a movie called taken for a ride. Um, it's a documentary from the nineties that was put out, I think by PBS. Um, and it kind of paints a picture that, this was all a conspiracy by General Motors to destroy streetcars and sell buses, uh, which that's definitely part of it. But it was really more of, um, you know, streetcars were kind of on their way out and General Motors took advantage of the trends to sell buses. And they also did kind of what's today called vulture capitalism or asset stripping. So they would buy up all of these uh 
public transit companies or streetcar lines that were failing in different cities. And they would, you know, scrap the cars, scrap the rails, scrap the overhead lines and convert them to yellow coach made buses or GMC buses. And it made financial sense, of course, on the balance sheet, but it was also good for GM. And, uh, and they did this through a shell company called national city lines. So this is, uh, Barney Larrick, who was, uh, the operational manager of American city lines, the company that took over the, um, trolley lines in LA and kind of stripped them down to the bone. Weren't those streetcars making money in Los Angeles? Well, after I got done chopping their heads off, we made money. Cut the miles down. Sell off the properties. Pull the company down. People told me you went in there and you fired everyone off when you went there. That's right. Why'd you do that? Well, if you don't need the people, what are you going to do? Keep them around for flies? There was people on there who was up for retirement. And you always get rid of the old ones first. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, that guy's probably dead by now, but uh, if not, maybe I hope he should so. be. Fuck him. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> He'd already outlived his usefulness when that was recorded, based <laughs> on what he is saying. Yeah. Uh, so that's kind of what I was talking about, the, the vulture capitalism stuff, asset stripping and all that, which was found. I would like to point out that I, I know what you're saying, but vulture capitalism just seems redundant. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like when people say, oh, no, that's crony capitalism. It's like, well, yeah, that's just capitalism. You know, <laughs> you're being a little too specific. <laughs> I've decided to reject the whole mantra of like, oh, well, we've never seen real communism because like. That just gives all of the like ANCAPs and libertarians too much room to be like, well, we've never seen real capitalism. It's like, no, no, you're when you say we haven't seen real communism, what you're talking about is like we made huge gains in a myriad of ways. But like propaganda was bad when you say like we've never seen real capitalism. It's just like, no, we've 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 seen how like this has just been absolutely a detriment to humanity and civilization and and like ecology as a whole, but like, yeah, keep, keep telling me how it's not perfect. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I will say that like ca communism is what, like a classless moneyless nationless society where no one has to be compelled to work and, and you know, everything's abundant and that's kind of, uh, something I, I, I mean, we haven't really seen that, but we've definitely seen very successful socialist, countries that were run by communist parties. So I don't know if that's splitting hairs or I've been reading black coats and reds uh -huh. where he like points out the, like the nature of how, like how spurious the we've never seen real communism argument really is at its heart because it's just a way of dismissing every like actual accomplished socialist revolution by saying like, well, I'm, guilty of 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 taking in all of the counter communist uh, propaganda so here are all of my complaints about this state that has done uh, a lot uh, to benefit its people but i'm going to claim that it's not real communism because uh, it turns out that on the pages of a book versus 
on the actual streets, it looks different. Like, yes, have we ever seen a classless, moneyless society? No. But I'm still willing to accept that under communism, enormous gains have been made to the benefit of the working class. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I don't know. And I don't know if I'm splitting hairs with that definition, but like... I don't think that you really are. I think it's more that I'm realizing how much of of left anti-communism uses that to like fuel their arguments. Yeah. Saying, saying like, oh, well, you know, China's not communist because actually communism is this. It's like, well, okay, what's, what's your point? Like if, if they're doing a lot to benefit people, but also haven't abolished capitalism yet, then yes, I understand the argument, but, uh, yeah, I don't know the whole like we. I don't know. I mean, they're at least approaching communism, and I think that's if if you want to have the actual like conversation that that's a whole episode of a podcast on its own, right? So and not I'm not really for here, but I'm not sure if I know enough to to really argue it one way or the other. But I don't know. That makes me think I really need to read Black Shirts and Red. That's that's Parenti, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. I, I put off reading him for a very long time because my reading list is so long and I'm finally doing it and it everyone was right. It's good and you should read it. One thing that I would say uh, in like the, oh, there's no true capitalism versus there's no true communism, or at least we haven't seen one or the other, is that the, uh, you know, supposed not true communism that we have seen has shown great, you know, strides towards making things better for the working class and more of it would obviously create more of that. Whereas the no true quote unquote capitalism that we've seen has just made everything worse for everyone. And the idea that we should ramp that up and eventually we will reach a point where it actually flips and is great for the working person is absurd because even if we haven't reached, you know, by the letter definition of communism as in classless, stateless, moneyless society, you know, the, the governments and the nations that have pushed towards that have shown time and time again that they make great strides for, you know, equality and eliminating poverty and increasing literacy and, you know, all of these positive things, whereas the less regulated capitalism just leads to, like, you know, more and more and more worker exploitation and, like, child labor and the worst aspects of it. Yeah, I would, I would actually argue that the U.S. is in one of the highest states of, like, well, like, neoliberalism, in my opinion, is just, like, the steady lurch to the economic right towards, like, libertarianism in the American sense of libertarianism. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, you just see a, a consistent uh, loss of, of freedom and autonomy and, and services to pretty much it's yeah it, it serves as the inverse of everything that you've seen under a, a communist state yeah pretty much so uh, basically i'm just tired of like uh arguing ideological purity and to a certain extent i'm willing to be like okay fine this ex unnamed state was not purely communist but they still like taught everyone to read and gave them health care and a job yeah so like yeah maybe your argument that like they were bad because they didn't like follow like a Marxist Leninist 10 point plan. Uh, uh, maybe you should shut up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good, again, like a, a valid uh, uh, discussion about this could be had. It would just take six to eight hours and like, uh, is probably not meant for our car podcast. Yeah. 
You think you could get it done that quick? Yeah, it's well it's, historically it's I would say that if leftism has taught us anything, it's that we can't accomplish anything in a hundred years without <laughs> everyone else on the left complaining about it. So Yeah. Uh, it's it's arguable. Like, it's like the service manual says this job takes, you know, three to four hours and uh <laughs> takes twelve hours if I do it. But uh way to bring it back around. <laughs> everything that you do the first time takes twice as long. When you do it the second time, it's half the time. Yeah. I can actually re like remove my boiler system from like as I have radiator heat in my house. I can remove the boiler, disassemble it, and put it back together in about two hours now. Yeah, because my heat has broken so many times. <laughs> uh. If you wanted better heat, you should have just bought a better house on the market. Okay. <laughs> no, no more Ann Camp stuff. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Uh, sounds like Connor has rejoined us. Uh, okay. I don't know. I had something I was going to add to that, but I forgot what it was. So, um, yeah. So in 1936 uh, was the foundation of National City Lines, and there were executives from Yellow Coach the bus company owned by GM and Greyhound, another bus company owned by GM uh, that were running it. Uh, the CEO was a guy named Roy Fitzgerald and he had sort of started his own bus company in rural Minnesota. Um, and then they put him in charge as kind of the, the puppet of this, uh, this, um, you know, mostly GM run corporation. Uh, but it also had investments from Mack trucks Standard Oil, Phillips Oil, and Firestone Tires. So you're kind of seeing where their interests lie. So they started buying up failing trolley lines, uh, reducing the hours, uh, or reducing the the service time. You know, they you know if they used to run every twenty minutes, they would be every forty minutes, uh, and then the the rates would go up, and so people you know stopped riding the the trolley uh, so much. And then they would convert those lines to buses, you know, GM buses. And then in 1945, uh, National City Lines bought the Los Angeles Railway, a.k.a. the yellow cars. I forget if it was the yellow cars or the I think it was the red cars that were in uh, Who, Framed, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Several months ago, I had the good providence to stumble upon this plan of the city council. A construction plan of epic proportions. We are calling it a freeway. Freeway? What the hell's a freeway? Eight lanes of shimmering cement running from here to Pasadena. Smooth, safe, fast. Traffic jams will be a thing of the past. So that's why you killed that new maroon? For this freeway? I don't get it. Of course not. You lack vision. I see a place where people get on and off the freeway. On and off, off and on, all day, all night. Soon, where Toontown once stood will be a string of gas stations, inexpensive motels, restaurants that serve rapidly prepared food, tire salons, automobile dealerships, and wonderful, wonderful billboards reaching as far as the eye can see. My God, it'll be beautiful. So, uh, like I said, during World War II was the peak in, in public uh, transit ridership. 
Uh, but the infrastructure got even more worn out after, you know, just, you know, there wasn't much investment during the great depression. And then during world war two, they needed the steel for, uh, you know, guns and bullets and stuff and not for rails and rail cars between 1945 and 1951 in LA or no, excuse me, in the, in the entire United States between 1945 and 1951, the number of riders carried each year fell by nearly 80 million people. So by 1946, uh, National City Lines controlled public transit in uh, at least 25 uh, cities. Um, one source said 83 cities. So I'm not sure uh, which is which. And now there's this guy named Edwin Quinby. I don't know if he's related to Brian, but he was um, <laughs> he was a captain in the Navy, I believe, during World War II. Uh, in 1946, he wrote this 33-page public letter to city officials around the country. So it was like an open letter that he would mail to all these different city officials in different cities. Um, and um, it's uh, it, they probably thought he was a crank because it was just written up on a typewriter and mailed out to them. At least that's kind of how the, the newspapers painted him back in the day. Uh, but it did prompt a Justice Department antitrust investigation. And uh, GM and National City Lines were convicted, uh, but they were only fined $5,000. And and GM appealed that decision also. <laughs> this was wartime, man. We, $5,000 is a lot of money to GM. <laughs> yeah. He said yeah. sarcastically. Yeah, I mean, at this point, I think GM was the largest and most profitable business in the world. So... Um, yeah, they, they could have spared that $5,000, I think. Let's see. And and there were three follow-up monopoly investigations against GM. Um, I think this, at least a couple of them were during the Kennedy administration. Uh, two of them were settled and one was dropped. So it didn't really go anywhere. Let's see. After the war, there was the, the big post-war boom. You know, the baby boomers, all the GIs coming back and settling down and having families you know, settling in the suburbs. And I don't know if you've ever heard of uh, Levittown. Um, there's this guy, Levitt. What was his first name? I forget. William J. Levitt, uh, who owned a construction company that built these, you know, big giant suburbs um, and that were all segregated also. And uh, these were, you know, kind of out on the outskirts of town where there weren't trolley lines. So people had to drive. They had to buy cars. That was, uh, you know, cars, highways, suburbs. It all kind of went together. And city planners decided, you know, we didn't want to replace these, uh, you know, maintain these rail systems that we have. Uh, we just want to build bus lines that can go out. You know, they can go out to the suburbs, too. It's, it's much easier than laying rail all the way out to bumfuck nowhere. Uh, we can just run a bus line there, you know, a couple times a day or whatever. And uh, this was also tied in with uh, like Robert Moses and the highway planning of the time period. You know, what's his name? Uh, Justin from from uh, Well, There's Your Problem. His old channel, Do Not Eat, has a good series on urban planning. And uh, episode two is called Power Pop or excuse me. Episode two is called Urban Freeways. 
Um, and that's a, a good source to understand like just the general idea of how freeways and highways were planned during, you know, this post-war period. Um, a lot of it was build a highway straight through the black neighborhood of, of whatever city it is, um, or cut it in half, you know, that happened all over the, the U S during this time period. And that's kind of its own podcast or, or uh, video or whatever. So in 1953, uh, Charles Wilson, the former president of General Motors, was appointed Secretary of Defense in the Eisenhower administration. And uh, Francis DuPont, who was a major GM stockholder and also of the DuPont Chemical Company uh, family, was named... So no one uh, of note, gotcha. Yeah, <laughs> was named uh, Federal Administrator of Highways. And together, these two uh, pushed for the interstate highway system in the Eisenhower administration. And I think in the previous episode, I had said that this was um, uh, Sloan, but it was, no, it was the guy that came after him. So sorry to slander Alfred P. Sloan. I mean, he was still a piece of shit, but. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry sorry to get our slander to be accurate. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Sorry to get my facts wrong is I guess what I should have said. Um, So in 1956, there was the Federal Aid Highway Act, uh, which created the interstate highways. And it also uh, created something called the Highway Trust Fund, which is where gasoline taxes went to fund highways. But, oh, big surprise, that money could not go towards public transit. Had to go towards highways. And in the 60s and 70s, you know, where there was all this... Uh, all these uh, highways being built through major cities, a lot of people got pissed because, you know, their houses were getting demolished and a giant highway was getting put up that cut their neighborhood in half. Um, I think I remember hearing in one city, I forget where exactly, they deliberately put the the, um, highway overpasses low enough that the buses couldn't go through them. And so they're basically saying, oh, the poor people can't go on this route. We want to keep them out of this side of the city. But uh, I never like cease to be amazed at how all of the things that like for a lot of my life just seemed like coincidentally bad for everyone were actually purposefully bad for everyone. Oh, yeah, that's like a huge part of American civic planning is just you know, let's fuck over the poor people and the black people and the Latino people as much as we can. So, no, I, I get it. It's just, I'm, it never ceases to amaze me. Like every, every time I think I have my head somewhat wrapped around how shitty we are as a nation. I'm like, Oh no, nope. They literally just wanted to make sure there wasn't a bus route between a poor neighborhood and a rich neighborhood. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, like I said, there's all these protests. Um, the mayor of San Francisco, Joseph Alioto, I think I'm pronouncing that right. He was also an antitrust attorney. He was a big, you know, he pushed back against all these expansion plans and basically killed a big highway project that would have gone right through the middle of San Francisco. Um, you know, there's vi- there's video of him in that uh, documentary saying, you know, people can just take the surface roads and spend a little longer time driving through our city and it's not going to be a big deal. You know, we don't need this giant freeway cutting through it. 
and then he was also part of those uh, those Senate hearings in uh, the seventies. I think it was seventy four that eventually uh, allowed highway trust funds to go towards mass transit. So this is when mass transit started to pick up a little bit in the U.S. Like it's still pretty terrible, but like it's better than it was. And I guess one example of that in Denver is, you know, there used to be a a big streetcar network. It was actually, it was called the Denver Tramway Company. And it operated up until like the 60s or 70s, I think. Uh, I think they ended trams in the 50s, but they still called it the Tramway Company. And they operated buses up until the 60s. And then it got uh, sold to the city of Denver. And then now that is uh, RTD the uh, regional transportation district. So that's our, our public transit system around here now. And there's a, there's a really good podcast series uh, from Colorado public radio called ghost train by a reporter named Nathaniel minor. Um, I'll have the link in the show notes, but that's, uh, it's like a four part series that talks about the history of public transit in the Denver area. And that's, it's a pretty fascinating thing, but like, one of the highlights for me at least is like there used to be a streetcar line down Colfax, which is one of the busiest um, avenues in Denver. Like, and it's also the longest continuous street in the U S it's about 30 miles long, goes all the way from uh, golden in the West to Aurora in the East. It goes through the whole city. And it's also like today it's the biggest thoroughfare for buses in the city. Like, um, the, the 15, the 15 L, the 16, I forget one of those might've shut down, but those are like some of the busiest bus routes in the city. And it used to be streetcars all in there. And then I think it was in the late forties, early fifties, they tore up all the tracks there and converted it to buses. Um, but I used to work at the, um, hospital at highway six and Sims over in, I guess it would have been Lakewood. And that's, it's, I don't know, it's a couple miles south of Colfax, but they were, at the time I was working there, they were building the new light rail line that goes from Golden to downtown. So it goes basically parallel to Colfax. And um, there was an older guy that came into the hospital there and we were chatting about the construction going on. And he's like, oh yeah, I took the last tram downtown on Colfax uh, with my grandma back in the day. And then they, you know, shut it down. I'm like, oh, no shit. I didn't even know there was a tram tram line there. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah. It was real convenient, you know, just stopped all over the place on Colfax and you could go anywhere. But like nowadays, the and, and the, the CPR reporting goes into this into more detail. Nowadays, the the lines, they don't really go on the busiest routes in Denver, they go kind of either parallel to or kind of along the highway or like where there's, you know, freight rail that wasn't being used very much. It's kind of just where they could put the lines and not where they're actually needed. And basically a lot of them, it's kind of like a hub and spoke sort of design. A lot of them just go from the suburbs to downtown and you got to change at the station downtown. And if you want to go anywhere else. Um, and so it's not the most efficient system and it doesn't have like that many people riding it because it doesn't really go where people want it to go. And part of it is because uh, 
you know, there's a lot of NIMBYs saying we don't want this, uh, this rail line going through our neighborhood and, you know, possibly demolishing houses or, or possibly, um, you know, interfering with traffic on main roads or with parking, or possibly allowing poor people into our neighborhood. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and some of it was legit. Like there's, um, one of the historically black neighborhoods of Denver, they didn't want it to be gentrified. They were afraid of, uh, gentrification if they put in the rail lines, because I don't know if this is true everywhere, but at least around Denver, they tend to put the, the, the bougie apartments right next to the rail stops. You know, it's kind of a seen as a, as a perk of living there, you know, but also like one of the, the pastors that was sort of leading the anti uh, light rail crusade in that time period, he grew up in segregated, I think it was Mississippi or Missouri. And, you know, he wasn't allowed to ride the streetcars as a black man. And, you know, resented that. And when he got to Denver, he got a car and felt free and was always associated car ownership with freedom. And so he's like, no, I don't want these, these, uh, this light rail. It's, it reminds me of, of the, the racist Jim Crow past, you know, which honestly, like as a, uh, the host of a car podcast, I can definitely see like the feeling that having a car, uh, provides you with a degree of freedom. Yeah. Like that vibe I get, but I don't really feel like uh, that feeling you get in the pit of your stomach, that little happiness should really like dictate public policy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't, yeah, I don't think my choices necessarily should uh, like, you know, I don't think everyone should have cherry Garcia ice cream for dessert. You know, people can have whatever they want. I mean, it's good ice cream, but maybe some people want Rocky Road or whatever. I don't know. I don't know nope. if that's a good as, analogy. As a communist, I insist that there be only vanilla ice cream, but that everyone gets it. <laughs> okay, Fidel Castro. Did I, get, did I get communism right there? <laughs> I mean, Fidel Castro was big on ice cream. Yeah, supposedly oh. uh, uh, Cuban ice cream is second to none. And so is Joe Biden. Coincidence? <laughs> I think not. Uh, no, I would argue that Joe Biden is second to many. <laughs> uh, um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess it's, it's like I said, it's not as simple an argument as General Motors uh, or Judge Doom conspired to buy up the streetcar companies and replace them with freeways and buses and stuff. But like that, that did kind of happen to some degree. Um, and there's a couple people, uh, Cliff Slater, um, Martha Bianco, who both wrote different sort of rebuttals to this conspiracy theory, I guess. And they're both pretty interesting and, and detailed. Uh, the, the one by Slater is where I got the thing about the jeepneys or jitneys, the, the little independent buses. Um, Jitney. Jitney, yeah. Jitney cabs are still a thing. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's like an illegal cab. Yeah, exactly. Therefore, so, an awesome cab. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Many of them are sketchy as fuck. Yeah. Be wary of, of modern Jitneys in America. Yeah. I'm, I don't know if I've ever seen that in America, to be honest, other than like the airport shuttle. But uh, There are 
I have encountered situations where somebody will roll up in an airport asking if you need a ride. Oh, okay. And yeah, p- people will operate like uh, effectively jitneys out, out of uh, their uh, you know personal vehicle under certain circumstances. Yeah. So it's just like Uber, but a little sketchier. Yeah, but when you're when your basis for comparison being a little bit sketchier than Uber. Yeah, that's Uber is infinitely sketchier than people like routinely give it credit for. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't know what they do for like background checks. I don't think it's a whole lot. Uh, I think almost none. Yeah. Um, somebody was it was assaulted or murdered recently here by a an Uber driver. Oh, nice. Yeah. Just weeks after I saw a bunch of people complaining that they needed to be more regulated because of all of the problems that people were having with Uber drivers. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's about all I've got on trolleys this time around. Uh, we might do a third episode in the future, but I don't, not sure what it would be about exactly. Um, I don't know. Anything else uh, before we close up here, guys? Uh, I think just the obligatory. Check us out on social media. Cars and Comrades podcast, wherever you consume your memes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, you know, we haven't said it in a while, but like, uh, you know, I, th- I think that if uh, anybody is listening and has something they would like to contribute to the show, like we do appreciate hearing other perspectives. Like we are, uh, you know, generally four straight white dudes just doing a podcast like you're obligated to do in your 30s. Yeah. But uh, we like hearing other perspectives. So get in contact with us if that sounds interesting to you. Yeah. Oh, and I'll say also, yeah. if you want, if you are a musician and you want to have your music on the podcast, you know, send us a clip and we'll put it on there. Um, you know, even if, even if you think it's not good, we'll put it in there. Um, there's a yeah. lot of things I like that aren't good. <laughs> yeah. I have terrible taste. I drive a Ford. <laughs> yeah. And I drive a Subaru. All right. Well, I guess, uh, that will sign off for now and, um, we'll be back in the future with something. I'm not sure what, we haven't really planned out our next few episodes, but I am taking the reins and I am going to do uh, uh, an episode on racing in uh, socialist states. OK, cool. Yeah. And uh, yeah. There, there was a, a whole socialist racing league based around the, the Soviet Union. And uh, it was interesting to see, like, uh, what the love of speed would drive these people to do uh, when accesses were or, uh, like uh, resources were sparse and access to them was even more sparse. So. That sounds cool. Yeah, I'll yep, be... I've uh, started started doing the research for all that. Should be fun. Nice. And I don't know. Maybe we'll do another news episode since those seem to get more downloads. I don't know. And we got a few news things to talk about. All right. Well, that that should do it for us. All Bye, right. everybody. Bye. Bye. My calculations are correct. When this baby hits eighty-eight miles per hour, you're gonna see some serious shit. When left entirely on its own devices, capitalism foists its diseconomies and its toxicity upon the general public and upon the natural environment. And then it does an interesting thing. It eventually begins to devour itself. 
If the paladins of corporate America want to know what really threatens our way of life, it's their way of life. It don't matter if you win by an inch or a mile. Winning's winning. Uh, it's important that we examine the twin forces behind the Biden candidacy, the billionaires and the Bolsheviks. Ha 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 